0: Hey there, conductors, if you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece, maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough, or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study. And how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Welcome to Podium Time, the podcast for conductors and students.
1: What he wanted us to do was to write a description of the emotions in the first moon of Brahms 4. What is this music trying to say emotionally? It's eight bars of searching, but then questioning again. I find that this is what conducting is about. This is what you're showing the orchestra. Besides the the, the nitty-gritty, what the emotional things are, what is Brahms trying to say? He's going from C major. I said, no, 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 What what is he trying to tell the audience?
2: Well, welcome to the podium time, uh, Maestro Bay. Thank you very much for for talking with us today. My if, pleasure. If we could start with you having just giving us a an overview of your path to the podium.
1: Well, um, I guess the it, it has to start at age nine. I saw Leonard Bernstein on television conducting a uh, young people's concert with the New York Philharmonic and, and my parents had been playing music in the house since I was born so music was always around me but s- there was something about that episode um, that triggered my interest in conducting so since I'm since I was nine uh, this is nothing th- this is the only thing I've ever wanted to do and I'm now 61 so that's a long it's a long trip to the podium but mm-hmm. it, it started with him. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I was lucky to see him rehearse the National Symphony. I went to a number of premieres, concerts that he conducted there. And then um, the Bernstein Mass, which premiered at the Kennedy Center, was the work that opened the Kennedy Center, um, was a very important um, event in my life. And I'll come back to that a little later on. But eventually I went to the University of Maryland, got a bachelor's in music education because I wasn't sure whether or not I could make it as an orchestral professional conductor uh, but it was always my dream to be one so I kept on with it I got that degree and then I went to the Peabody Institute in Baltimore and got a master's in orchestral conducting and then followed a, a series of assistant conductorships um, I had a youth orchestra I had a uh, I was the assistant of a, a regional orchestra in Annapolis Maryland and um, then uh, my first full-time job was with the Richmond Symphony in Virginia as an, as an assistant conductor. Then Rochester, New York as an assistant conductor. And then I sort of worked my way up the ladder in each of these orchestras to associate, to principal guest. And mm-hmm. um, after Rochester, uh, I had four years with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra I went back to Rochester, and then my first music directorship uh, of of a large orchestra was in Erie, Pennsylvania. And then uh, for the last 20 years, I've been here in Austin. It's a long, long trip. (laughs) (laughs) And and many assistantships, but I I really credit that time as an assistant um, for really learning how to do things, what to say, what not to say to an orchestra.
2: Okay. Was that from experience or observation?
1: Yes. <laughs> it's both. I mean, as an assistant, you know, most of the time what you do, you sit in the back of the hall. You you have to learn the works that are on the program. So that means that's a lot of music to learn mm-hmm. and be ready uh, at the beck and call to answer a question about balance from the conductor. You know, and it could be right in the middle of a symphony. The conductor will stop. So, could you hear the second flute there? Mm-hmm. And you have, to, you have to be ready with an answer. But, you know, sitting out in the hall and watching a, a master conductor on the podium, you learn lots about, um, well, first of all, how to run a rehearsal, rehearsal technique, efficiency, or lack thereof. There, there were a number of conductors I saw that uh, were not as efficient as others. You learn what not to say to an orchestra by observing <laughs> other conductors. And I also, I have to credit, um, I spent 11 years at the Aspen Music Festival. I was a student there once, Mm -hmm. one summer, and then I was hired to be on the faculty after that. But that summer when I was a student there, um, I overdosed on orchestral rehearsals. The the Aspen Festival has five orchestras, and then a sixth would be the opera orchestra. Mm -hmm. So I went to as many rehearsals as, as I possibly could, and that's where I feel like I learned the most, I learned, more, I learned I have learned more from observing than I did from any classroom conducting lessons yeah
3: yeah
1: there's and a lot I've learned in, in there's a lot that I've learned in, in the classroom but um, much more from observing other conductors work
2: mm-hmm.
1: good and bad
2: yeah and speaking in the classroom you you studied at Peabody and you studied with prouchitz is that correct
1: that is correct Frederick Poussitz mm-hmm. yes I,
2: he I admit- very
1: interesting character.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that's why we we would like to talk about him a bit. I meant <laughs> to ask you in our in our pre chat if you knew, because um, we each know a couple of people who studied with Prashnitz at Peabody. We've we've interviewed Mark Mondorano. Yes. And um, I think we're going to be interviewing Kyle Wiley Pickett. Uh huh. Um, so we've we have a couple different. Uh, I guess people who have told us about him. So if you would, if you would speak about your experiences with him, I think sure. he's a very interesting figure.
1: He, he was a very interesting figure. I'm, I'm sad to say he's no longer with us, but, um, he, he, he always had a foot in the rep, the, the standard repertoire and the other foot in very contemporary music. Um, he was a champion of Elliot Carter recorded the double concerto, which is a fiendishly difficult piece. Mm. Um, he was very fond of Roger Sessions' music, which is very thorny. Um, so I, I think he he had a, a sort of a well-rounded, if not tilted towards the modernistic pieces, uh, as, as an approach. Now I have to say, in all honesty, that about half of our lessons took place in a restaurant <laughs> where we had where we had lunch and he had a drink or two, and we discussed either the scores that we were that we had to prepare for him or things that just had to do with music, but not anything pertinent to what we were studying. So there, there was a lot of conversing, but we had to memorize the scores that were assigned to us. And he would sit in a chair in one corner of the room and we would have to stand opposite him and conduct the scores in silence and so I guess he would tell from our gestures if we knew what we were doing or not. But
3: mm-hmm.
1: I, I will tell you that one lesson that I took with him in the two years that I had him completely changed my approach to preparation. Yeah. I learned more from this one lesson than I've learned in, in many a lesson. Mm-hmm. So we, we were assigned the second suite from Daphnis and Chloe. Okay. And I busted my butt learning, learning the notes, learning the phrases, uh, cueing. As you know, it's a very complicated score, very beautifully scored there's, but there's a lot going on in that 16 minutes. And at the end of the week's preparation, I felt like I could conduct this thing from memory. So about five minutes into this lesson, I'm conducting, uh, you know, I'm giving cues and this and that. And then he stopped me and he said, so Peter, what is going on? Sta- what is going on on the stage at this time of the this point in the ballet? And I, I froze. <laughs> I had done all the preparation for the notes, for the cues, and so forth. I forgot that this is a ballet and it has a story. And he took the rest of that fifty minutes to verbally undress me. <laughs> I got the biggest tongue lashing I have ever had um, at least as far as conducting was concerned, or from a teacher <laughs> yeah. how dare you conduct a piece of music or think you know how to conduct a piece of music and you don't know you don't know what's going on on stage and this is a ballet yeah
3: um,
1: and, and I mean but this went on for a good forty five minutes, <laughs> and I was close to tears and close to quitting after that because I felt like i I completely blew it, but I learned so much from that one tongue lashing that that, um, it it caused me to add many more layers to my study that Mm -hmm. I hadn't considered. So now I think it's ultra important to do all of the background preparation about if you're learning a piece of music, what led up to the composer writing that piece of music, what pieces were written around that time, any anecdotes, uh, from the composer or from others about that piece of music. If it is an opera overture, I now listen to the entire opera. Oh, really? Uh, just, yeah, a couple wow. of months ago we did the Semiramide overture.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, it, it, it's, since that day, back in 1979, I now listen, and I make sure I listen to the entire opera with a, a score, if possible, a vocal score or a full score, uh, to see if the composer, in this case Rossini, used any of the tunes in that opera in the overture. Now, sometimes he didn't. As you know, like the Barber of Seville overture had nothing to do with the opera. Mm-hmm. It was lifted from another opera he had written earlier and just <laughs> swapped the scores because he was running out of time. Yeah. But in, in the case of Semiramide, there are tunes in the overture that he uses later. So now I know what the context of that tune in the overture is why is it in there what does it mean what is it about and that helps me uh work out the phrasing with the orchestra or if they're not quite getting the mood right i have to say well look this is this is about the queen who is about to be uh Mm. had (laughs) so to speak (laughs) and and so forth and so on and adds a little extra layer to to the preparation Mm -hmm. so that's, that's one really important piece of advice I have for any young conductors. Okay. If you're assigned a, a piece that is non-theatric, non-theatrical, do all the background work. If it is theatrical,
2: do all absolutely the Absolutely, do all the background work. work. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: absolutely. And, and I understand the, the point he was making. You have to know what you're conducting about. Why did Ravel write this music at this point in, in the piece? Why? Mm-hmm. What, is it, what does it describe? Yeah, I, I was just too hung up with notes and and cueing and all of that and memorization um, to leave that very important part of the preparation out.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a that's that's something that I can expect a lot of students are doing.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I hope so, but you know, it's ha- it's hard when you're young to to just memorize a piece of music. Yeah, um, it's hard, and it takes a lot of time to do, but. Um, again, doing the other background preparation, uh, extremely important. Mm -hmm.
4: Mm -hmm. So in doing, in, in, in working on memorizing a score that you're working on, do Mm -hmm. do you have a process that you go through to kind of help your memorization or does the memorization kind of just, as you spend time with it and as you're working on it, does the memorization just come?
1: It's a little of both, to be honest with you. Um, if I'm studying a symphony, while i'm marking the score and and learning the phrase structure and just learning the form of each movement i'm sort of making a chart on a piece of paper as to how the uh, the exposition runs i mean is it a series of eight measure phrases um I i just sort of make this chart so that i can see on paper how the the piece is forming um and I'm a very slow learner. I'll, I'll admit. I do. I do not have a photographic memory, so I have to really stare at the score every single page and flip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, especially once I finish the movement, I compare the development, the uh, the exposition to the recap, because that's where you can easily be <laughs> tripped up if you're trying to memorize, um, let's say, the first movement of a symphony, because mm-hmm. the recap is usually not exactly like the Development is there. Two yeah. bars missing here, or four bars expanded here. But that's also really interesting to, to discover
3: mm-hmm.
1: how, how the composer is thinking as he's writing or she's writing this music down.
2: Yeah, and you can't. I don't think. I don't think there's a a Beethoven recap that's orchestrated the same way. Correct. So many little details are going to be different.
1: That's that's exactly right. And now after we've talked about all of this, I will say that I don't find that memorizing a score is essential to uh conducting it Mm -hmm. i don't think it's i don't think it's absolutely necessary if you do well uh blessings on you (laughs) um sometimes it's just a matter of time if if uh if i have a concert like i had a concert last weekend and next concert is two weeks from now i i may have learned the music very well it may not be ready to memorize Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and again I, i think memorization is not an essential tool. If you really know the piece and you have the score in front of you, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is nice though. I will say to, to not have that stand music stand in front of you and you're that much closer to the players and you can really pay attention. But there are some concerts where I'll, I'll do one piece for memory. Maybe it's the symphony or, and then the rest of the concert I use a score. I I just don't think it's a big deal.
2: Mm -hmm. Are there any other um, parts of your score study process that you'd like to share?
1: Well, um, you know, when when uh, I guess the process that I learned I learned in college, but it's the process that I think many com- conductors use, and it it started with one of these uh, blue red pencils. You know, half of it's mm-hmm. blue, half of yep. it's red. I've got them right here. And um, <laughs> the way I was taught is that you you study the page of the score and you look at try to find out where the phrase starts and where it ends.
3: Okay. And at
1: that point, I draw a blue line straight down in my score. So I can, I can visually see where the sentences or paragraphs happen. Um, so the, the, the blue pencil has come in very handy for me for that reason. And then I use other colored pencils for cueing dynamics. Um, and again, these are all reminders, all the dynamics, or at least for many composers, the dynamics are in the score. I just use colored pencils to help, um, uh, highlight them and it's kind of like when you used to study for a, a history test you'd rewrite your notes yeah over and over again until you absorb the material and when i'm looking at the score i know this the subito piano is coming up in four bars because i can see it coming
3: mm-hmm.
1: um so it's a combination of using a lot of colored pencils for various reasons but i think the 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 phrase demarcation in the score is for me a very important um part of learning the score but it's a painstaking process for me
3: okay
1: um you know a Mahler symphony might take me I may start three or four months in advance mm-hmm. because there's so much information on any one page and the way he orchestrates uh, you know you can't say that all five uh, principal woodwinds are playing exactly the same thing they may be at times doing the same thing, but then they jump and do what the second violins do and so forth. There's so many directions on any given page that um, a score like that would take much, much longer.
2: Mm -hmm. And everyone's at a different dynamic.
1: Sure. (laughs)
2: No, I, 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 at Aspen,
1: of course, I, I mentioned Aspen. There are many world renowned conductors who come through that festival. And I, I don't want to name the conductor because maybe I'm doing a disservice by saying this, but there was a conductor who came and did the entire Mavlast of Smetana Mm -hmm. and did it brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. And I just was curious to see how, how he marked the score. So I went back to the librarian. I say, may I see Maestro's score just for a minute? He handed it to me. It had, you know, the the score is about, you know, three, two or three inches thick. Mm -hmm. And if rifling through, I saw six black pencil marks. That's all I saw, and I couldn't believe it. Now, either maybe this was a, a, a an additional score that he had, a spare score, mm-hmm. or he had a photographic memory. I don't know, but there was hardly anything marked mm-hmm. in that score. And then I've seen I've seen conductor scores that look like coloring books. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they look like they look like stained glass windows because there's colors everywhere and arrows pointing to this and that. And, you know, everybody has their own system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and it's the system. I use has helped me a, a lot yeah. in learning a piece of music.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard the advice that it doesn't, doesn't really matter what you're doing as long as it works for you. And as, as long as it's consistent so that it continues to work.
1: Sure. And that you, the main point being that you've learned and absorbed this piece so well that when you go to the first rehearsal with the orchestra you have a fully formed interpretation ready to go and that's not to say that you will change the interpretation as you hear the orchestra play but you you can't show up with a two thirds baked cake yeah you have to have you have to have the score really internalized so you can um you know, you feel like you're you're leading in the first rehearsal a a completely formed
2: mm-hmm.
1: interpretation.
2: Yeah, my first teacher always said the first rehearsal is our first performance. Oh yes,
1: yeah. absolutely. And I my tendency also is to play through the entire work on a first rehearsal, that yeah. gives the players an opportunity to see physically how it feels to play the piece. Um, what tempi I'll use, what little rubati and what are, what other sort of quirky things I might bring to that score, um, before going back and, you know, taking it apart. Mm -hmm. It also gives me an idea on what, what to work on with them. Yeah. (laughs) You know, where the tricky parts are for them. Um, and sometimes they're not always the ones I thought they were going to be.
4: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So has has there been a piece that you've uh, done and you thoroughly went through the score and maybe even had it memorized and felt very good about your interpretation that you know many years later you go back and your interpretation is completely different?
1: Completely different. I uh, probably not, but I would say every Beethoven's every Beethoven symphony. There's something that has changed along the way. Um, I started out as one of the non-believers in every single metronome marking that he wrote because you know 80 85 percent of them work very very well some of them are just incredibly fast so i i tended to do it the traditional way which was kind of foolish um you know some s- slowing down here what was not marked or doing ba, 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 da, 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 some of the older conductors used to do but yeah Then I went to the kick of, well, he wrote these metronome markings in. I should try to approach them and do them all that way. And that was an interesting process. But now when I do them, I I do sort of a mix of them, the -hmm. mix of the old and the new. So every Beethoven symphony, I think every Mozart symphony, something has changed, whether it's a tempo or whether it's a phrase shape or, or, or I see something in the score that I didn't realize the first time,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: but I, I don't recall a piece where I conducted exactly the same way as I did before. Yeah.
0: Well, (laughs) maybe,
1: maybe Bolero. Okay.
3: Yeah. The, the tempo should, the
1: the tempo should be the same, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's just, you know, little subtle details and things that you find.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about um, solo symphony. Yes, sure. Yes. Would you would you explain explain what this is? Sure.
1: Well, there's a there's an extraordinarily uh, talented uh, woman here in Austin named Allison Orr, and she was trained as a dancer and then became a choreographer. But her idea was not to do ballet as we know it or modern dance as we know it. But her idea was to take people. Um, Mostly everyday, who have everyday kinds of jobs, and choreograph them. For example, she um, she's won an award for a documentary that was made of one of her major projects, which is called the Trash Project. And she <laughs> she hooked up with the waste management company here in Austin, and said that she wanted to choreograph the trucks, the drivers. Of the trucks, and she created this entire evening where the the a, a, a former airport tar- tarmac was still bare, and she cre- she she built some uh, some seating risers for the audience. She had choreographed the trucks. Uh, coming in from opposite sides of the tarmac and then curling in towards the audience and then peeling out and the the arm that picks up the trash can and dumps the trash into the truck she had she had them choreographed this way and and so forth
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, that 's the sort of thing she does well she had come to some of my concerts and she saw the the various gestures that that I make and all conductors make and she got the idea to try to do a A choreographed version of what I do. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So she she and I met. I didn't quite understand what she had in mind, but once she explained it, I totally got it. And she uh, she asked me to pick uh, six pieces of music that I feel very close to. So I did, and she asked me to just conduct. Oh, a ten-minute or five-minute segment from each of those pieces,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which I did, and she filmed them. And she saw that what I was doing, well, like for example, I would maybe I would cue like this, making an OK sign. I would I'd cue like that, and she and then after a while she came to me says, "Well, Peter, what I'd like to do is I'd like you to conduct um, six of these." And then I'd like you—you you pointed at someone once. I'd like you to point this way twelve times, then go back and give me six more of these, and then point that way. In other words, she choreographed the motions that she saw me doing, and I had to memorize the sequence.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Meanwhile, there was a there is a f- fantastic, impression uh, uh, improvising composer here in town called Graham Reynolds, and he he saw the videotape of me doing doing this six times and then that eight times and then doing a sweeping motion four times. And he improvised a score to these motions.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So when the, the solo symphony was finally put together, she turned the, the little, um, well, I guess there was a 15 piece orchestra around the other way. So I would be conducting them, but facing the audience. Mm-hmm. So the audience could also see my facial expressions. So I did a, a a small excerpt from the Rite of Spring rearranged for 15 instruments, an excerpt from Beethoven's Second Symphony, um, Sheep May Safely Graze of Bach. And then those were interspersed with these uh, improvised sections where I had to do these motions that she's, she asked me to do while Graham improvised the music. So we did it. I think we did this performance four times and he improvised the score four different ways yeah and that's that's what solo symphony was and there were some also taped interviews mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. i had done with her about my life or uh, what conducting means to me and so forth and so on those were interspersed in the evening as well
2: okay do you know if there's a uh, a recording of the of the concert because i've only been able to find the the two minute trailer if there is one of the entire
1: program, i uh, she must have it. I have not okay. seen the entire program. I've just also I've just seen the clips, and I know they're on her um, her website, which is forkliftdanceworks.org. Okay. forklift as, as one word, and then danceworks.org. org. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah, we'll we'll put a link to all that. I really liked the idea because um, I'm always interested in in how like how non-musicians see conductors because we are very aware of what we're doing and we have to be and the musicians are um but i i remember as i developed as a musician and a conductor beginning to realize what conductors were doing and how it was working and how everyone does everything in a completely different way everyone's is very unique well, and there's an extremely
1: important part of conducting that is left that the audience is left out of, and that's mm-hmm. the facial expression
3: yeah. from
1: the conductor, and that that's what uh, her whole idea was to turn around and um, make me as transparent as possible to everyone, to the orchestra mm-hmm. and the audience. And there were many audience members that came out and said, "I had no idea. I had no idea you were making faces or <laughs> you yeah. you." you look at the players in a certain way when certain parts of the, the, the music happens. And, you know, I don't, that's one thing I don't choreograph.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I don't say, well, I've decided that it, when the, <laughs> you know, when this part of the Beethoven symphony comes, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Or I'm going to do that. That's all. That's just all spur of the moment. It's just what the music means to me at that time. But she thought it would be important to share that with the audience. And I appreciated that. Mm hmm. Um, there have been many suggestions coming my way here in Austin for there to be a camera on me and have a screen above the orchestra. And I, that just scares the daylights out of me. <laughs> I, I think the point the point of going to an orchestral concert is to hear the music and to see the orchestra play. And I think I'm just the conduit for, for all mm-hmm. that to happen.
3: Mm-hmm. But
1: I do understand why it's – it's a matter of curiosity for an audience to want to know, well, what in the world is he or she showing them? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does she, what does she show in her face and how does the orchestra react to that? Mm-hmm. The really important part.
2: Yeah. Yeah. As you, I, um,
1: as you both know.
2: Oh yes. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. I, um, I did an experiment last year. I had a recital and I did the live stream from behind the orchestra. Uh huh. Um, I never heard any comments one way or the other, but um, but I thought it would be interesting to show my family at least you know, what we're actually doing up here <laughs> Sure, well I mentioned Leonard Bernstein um, mm-hmm.
1: the, who, who I first saw when I was nine and he in a way is what um, has triggered many many audiences to to wonder what the conductor is looking like while they conduct because we had the benefit of seeing him yeah. express what he felt about the music and as you know he rarely stood still. He jumped up <laughs> and down. He had his hands up in the air like trying to bring heaven down to him. Uh the grimaces, the smiles, the the ecstatic expression, everything about that piece of music came over his face. And we are so used to seeing that because we've seen concerts on television that it, it is a little frustrating when you're sitting in the audience and, and wondering, well, what's he, what is he doing?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Bernstein was one of the first to take advantage of the the medium of television yeah. to not only explain music, but to show what conductors really do. Now, Toscanini was on television, of course, and other conductors were on television before him. Um, but you saw more of a, a wide gamut of expression from Bernstein than anyone else up to him.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. That serves as a, as a nice transition into uh, into your upcoming big project. Would you like to talk about
1: that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> so as a, I mentioned, I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and Bernstein was my hero and the, the reason I became a conductor. When I learned um, that Jackie Onassis had commissioned him to write the opening work for the Kennedy Center in Washington. Mm-hmm. I was ecstatic. I was 14 at the time when I, when the Bernstein mass premiered at the Kennedy Center. And I, I think I took a series of buses, city buses, to get to the Kennedy Center, and I saw the fourth ever performance of the piece. And it stuck with me so hard that I kind of, I've been dreaming since I was 14 Uh, that I would love to conduct this work. Little did I know how much money it would take to produce it, how many people (laughs) are involved. (laughs) Uh, It's a very complex piece of music. It's like conducting a a major opera, and then some, because it has Mm -hmm. not only the orchestra, it has marching band in it, it has a rock band, it has 300, well, 200 singers. Um, It's just a massive piece of music, but I've always wanted to conduct it because I just find it a very emotionally powerful piece. And um, it's finally happening in Austin. Um, I started about two years ago with my wife raising awareness and we're raising funds for it. We had to produce this separately from the Austin Symphony because it was much too expensive for the symphony to put on. And they were kind enough to give me their blessing to let me do it as an independent project, but we had to raise all this money from people who had not given to the symphony before Mm -hmm. because we had to be sure to keep all the fundraising separate. You know, the orchestra is still fundraising and we were fundraising separately for the mass, but she didn't, she did a magnificent job with the help of about 15 other so-called ambassadors. Mm -hmm. And we are staging, fully staging the work. It's the first time that's ever been done in Texas, a fully staged performance of Mass on uh, June the 29th and 30th. And um, the, uh, but the Bernstein family were so uh, interested in this project that uh, both uh, um, Jamie and Alexander Bernstein, who are two of his three children, are coming here. To uh, watch the performance so I'm thrilled it's it's going to be a magnificent uh, experience and uh, it's it's also the first time in the history of our city the the Austin Symphony Ballet Austin Austin Opera uh, three local choirs a new children's choir the University of Texas marching band and several other university uh, ensembles are all participating in one project it's never been done before
2: So that's happening this this coming June, yes. This June, yeah. Do you yeah. know the piece? I um, I've ta- I was just about to ask if you could if you could give us a quick rundown. I've talked about it in class and watched a couple clips, but I don't I don't know it very well.
1: Well, it, in 1971, you, you have to put it in context. This this was written during the Vietnam War. Nixon sure. was uh, president. Uh, Bernstein was very much anti-Nixon and anti-Vietnam War. And, uh, it was a very controversial controversial work because for, for many reasons, uh, number one, it's a, it's based on the Roman Catholic ritual mass, but he did not want it to be performed in a church. He wanted it to be performed as a theatrical piece. Mm -hmm. So it, it premiered in the opera house of the Kennedy center. It's all it's, he calls it mass, a theater piece for players, singers, and dancers. And um, you can imagine uh, Roman Catholics, priests or otherwise, (laughs) going to the theater, um, watching the celebrant come out initially wearing a T-shirt and jeans, playing a guitar, and then being dressed in the Roman Catholic vestments. And then right after that, a marching band comes down the aisle uh, during the Kyrie, and all these rock musicians and so forth, all participating um and in the in the course of the mass, you find that the congregation are very upset with god um uh, they're they're upset about all sorts of things, complaining just like we did as teenagers against the war you know we we made placards and protested the Vietnam War and so forth and so on, and it seemed like these young people were protesting just about everything and losing faith and at the climax of mass about. Well, I'd say about seventy-five percent in, or eighty percent into the piece. The celebrant has a mental, break, a nervous breakdown. Mm. He, he stands on top of the the altar, throws the chalice down, it breaks into many pieces, and he has this extraordinary soliloquy for about ten minutes, and he's lost his faith.
3: Mm.
1: So. A friend of mine who is a priest said that his mother was at, at this, one of these performances and she had to run out of the theater three or four times because all of this seemed very blasphemous, you know. Yeah, yeah. And plus, you had a Jew writing a Roman Catholic mass
3: mm-hmm.
1: with marching bands and rock musicians and so forth in it. It just was a very controversial piece, but yeah. an extraordinarily powerful one.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, some of his best music is in there, and it has everything you know about Bernstein's music in it. It has West Side Story types of sounds. It's Chichester Psalms type of sounds in it. It has some of his concert music sound in it, some 12-tone music in it. Uh, He uses quadraphonic uh, pre-recorded segments in it, too. So your surround sound in the theater. He, He threw everything in it plus the kitchen sink. (laughs) <laughs> but it's a very emotionally powerful piece and eventually at the end it's the congregation who are questioning him who help raise him raise him back up
3: mm-hmm.
1: and sort of resurrect his his own faith yeah. it's uh, again it is stuck in my mind since 1971 and um, now here we are 2018 I'm finally going to get a chance to conduct it
4: mm-hmm. maybe the
1: last time I'll ever conduct it Yeah.
4: so because it is so difficult and there's so much that goes into it um, I'm assuming this is not frequently performed it anybody. It
1: w- no, it's not. Although I will say because this is the centennial year of Bernstein's uh, uh, well, it was, it was 100th anniversary, there are more organizations putting it on. I know just recently the Philadelphia Orchestra performed it with uh, Yannick, and a recording was just issued. Uh, Dudamel just did it in Los Angeles, but they mm-hmm. both did it with everyone on stage, I believe. Yeah. Uh, without well or minimal sets and, and 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 so forth, but ours will be a fully staged performance. And because it's fully staged, it requires so many people, and it's a very expensive thing to put on. That's one of the reasons it it hasn't been done very often. But yeah. you know, I think in my lifetime I saw three or four staged performances of, or I'd say two staged performances of it, and two concert versions it's it's picking up steam again and and it's a good thing
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know the recording of it is what kept it going kept the the memory of the music going um uh Bernstein recorded it while the first production was going on, but he didn't conduct in the theater. He oh. was writing up until the last minute <laughs> so he he had no time really to to uh, rehearse and and do the performances in the theater, but they would do their shows. And in the mornings and early afternoons, he'd take everyone over to the concert hall at the Kennedy Center. And that's where he made the recording. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. But he,
1: he, never, he, never reco- he never performed it uh, in a staged version himself. Okay. Just like he never, he never conducted a staged version of West Side Story.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: All he did was re- uh, record the whole thing in a studio. And I'm sure you've probably seen that video of mm-hmm. the recording sessions
4: now since this is something that is very close to you personally um are you kind of excited to be able to do uh, like kind of put your own your own interpretation on it um have you like had, gone to a concert and you've heard it that maybe you were a little disappointed by you know their interpretation or is it something that's pretty pretty straightforward like this is just how it is
1: i would say uh it is pretty much how it is um everything is very clearly marked in the score as far as Tempe and so forth and so on. But the celebrant who is the lead, uh, the lead role in the piece will bring his own interpretation to the music probably within the guidelines of the score. But um, I, I have seen one performance online that I, I was disappointed with only in that it seemed like it was under rehearsed. Okay and you can't under rehearse this piece it's <laughs> again it's it's in a way it's a three ring circus um, mm-hmm. to put together but that's pretty much what an opera is
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. and this this to me is 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 an opera
2: yeah
1: it just happens to use a roman catholic mass as its uh, foundation
2: mm-hmm. i know there are a couple recordings online i think there's one there are more and more
1: Oh, yeah. I, I think there may be five or six now for, for decades. In fact, I'd say for... Uh, Maren Alsop is only the second person to record that, and I think it came out, uh, I want to say, 2010. Okay. So that's about 40 years between, <laughs> between recordings. Wow. And then since Maren put hers out, um, I know Kent Nagano recorded it. I think Christian Yervy recorded it, uh, and now Yannick mm-hmm. has recorded it. So yeah. that's not a whole lot of recordings, but I understand. It, again, it's just very difficult to put a production of this on.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: can you imagine to to have to pay all these performers? Yeah. <laughs> the recording company, well, uh, let me see, somewhere around here is a copy of it. So uh, Deutsche Grammophon is the one who, who released it, and they must have ponied up Quite a bit to uh, I can't find it, but anyway, um, oh here it is. So this is it. Mm -hmm. He has a whole series of candles, votive candles, spelling out mass. I see. But um, it's just it's a cast of thousands, and uh, God bless uh, Deutsche Grammophon for putting it out. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Philadelphia Orchestra is not cheap to record, by the way. No, I (laughs) don't think so. It's not an inexpensive proposition.
2: Yeah, so there are recordings, but nothing's uh, nothing's gonna beat it live. So if you're in the right. Right. you're in the area, absolutely go see it because you may not, you know, they're not not something like this. There are not gonna be that many opportunities to to see it live. Yeah,
1: thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very important project.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I'm 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 glad we were we were able to bring it up. Appreciate so, it. So should, we can move on to some of our. Sure. Some of our smaller questions. Sure. Um, who is somebody that you particularly admire? Um, it doesn't have to be a conductor. It could be, but it doesn't have to be.
1: Um, wow. that's a, How do I answer that question? Uh, well, certainly Bernstein, uh, for, for obvious reasons. Um, well, you know, I should say maybe not so much for obvious reasons. Uh, Bernstein was not only a uh, a magnificent musician, but he was so interested in uh, human causes, um, pacifist causes, um, human rights, um, and you know because of his his desire to to put people's and especially peoples in conflict together, it got him into a lot of trouble with the government back in the day. I think there was a 600-page dossier on him. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was after him big time because he he espoused um, U.S.-Russia, uh, U.S.-Soviet Union cooperation, especially, you know, um, musical cooperation, and we should send American uh, performers yeah. to... To Moscow, and they should send us, and all of this during the Cold War, and um, you know he was almost uh, put on the stand there during the McCarthy hearings. Some of his friends were put on the stand, and that was that's another episode. But I, I appreciate his humanism. Um, another musician who is really a very important person in my life is the pianist Leon Fleischer okay. I don't know if you're aware, if you know about him, but one of the great pianists of our time, and he—he he and George Sell recorded a lot of uh, r- repertoire that, uh, to this day, I think it's—it's it's hard to top the Beethoven concertos, the two Brahms concertos, Greek Schumann, on and on. Um, he is—is a thoroughly probing musician, um, someone I learned a lot from, and he's also a conductor too, and. He, <laughs> I, I'm so thrilled. I've had the chance to, to do both of the Brahms concertos with him, and a number of other concertos. And he's coming, believe it or not, in January at the age of 91 to play the Franck Symphonic Variations. Good
3: and that's a him. piece,
1: <laughs> yes, and that's a piece he recorded with Cell back, I think, in 1956 or 57. And here it is, um, 60 years later, and he's going to play it here. I learned a lot from him because he he really thinks about. Um, about music and how, how it should speak, you know, what, how he thinks the composer, um, how the composer puts things together and how we can t- take that idea and do something with it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, he had th- thousands of piano students, including Andre Watts and not a single one of them, not not a single two of them sound alike. Um, and that's a tribute to his teaching. And his probing nature about music. And he he was extremely helpful to me early on in my career when I was at Peabody. He hired me to be his assistant conductor and um, gave me a lot of opportunities to conduct the orchestra when he couldn't. Um, Very, very helpful, sweet man. Oh, my gosh. I'm very fond of Yo-Yo ma and who isn't
3: yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> for for many of the same reasons, uh, he's not just a, a great musician but he's a real man she's a, a wonderful man, a very kind man, and has funny things to say and very profound things to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very fond of Alfred Hitchcock. love his <laughs> films Wes Anderson is another film uh, maker that i I truly appreciate mm-hmm. oh gosh have you seen have you seen Island of Dogs? No, but that's on my list of things I, to do. I, I hope by next week I can see that movie. I, Have you seen it yet? I haven't. I haven't, but that's
2: on my list of things to do as well.
1: <laughs> Moonrise Kingdom. Oh yeah. Is a, a stunning. Well, Moonrise Kingdom is a great is a great film for classical music lovers mm-hmm. to see. Oh yeah. Because the entire score is by Britain or the. Uh, Britain, Benjamin Britten's guy right? And exactly. And this freaked me out. One of the first scenes is of. Uh, I think the the young girl in her bedroom, and she pulls out a book, and and within the book there is another pullout, and there were a series of seven inch records, and by golly, those were the accompanying records to Bernstein's young people's concerts in book form. Oh, wow. I recognized the label <laughs> of the little record, and when she put that down. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm I'm in for it in this movie.
3: Yeah.
1: Um it it's so it, it's so connected to the classical music and how he picked the the, the specific Britain excerpts to go with the film. It's just stunning.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And you see you see Bill Murray and um Bruce Willis in ways you've never seen them before. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. Mm-hmm. I don't know, there's so many things I'm fond of. <laughs> but those people come to mind right away. Okay.
2: Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom is one of my favorite movies.
1: But, great, great movie, yeah. and so so many surprising things in mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm.
2: Grand Budapest Hotel is pretty
1: amazing Fantastic, too. Yeah, the, a lot of colors. Yes, the, the the use of color in his film is just something else. Mm-hmm. And how he plays around with speed. I don't know if you yeah. remember this this uh, this chase scene in uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. I think they're on sleds. Yes. And he speeds up the film so much that it looks absolutely ridiculous, this chase scene, but brilliant man. Yeah.
4: Well, since we're on the topic of things we uh, we like, is there some? Is there a piece that you uh, particularly admire that it's either new uh, or it's an old uh, older work that maybe just isn't performed that you personally wish would become uh, more well-known, more performed? Besides the I Bernstein Mass, of course.
1: <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> well, sure. Besides well, you know, I it's it's in a way it's ridiculous to say that Schumann's second symphony is not well known. Of course it's well known, but it's not like a Beethoven fifth symphony. Mm-hmm. And every time that's the piece I've conducted more than anything in since I've been here in Austin, which is twenty years. I keep coming back to that piece because I find so many powerful things in it and so much of Schumann as as a person. And the trials he went through while he was writing the piece, it, it all seems to be uh, so emotive and so powerful. I really love the piece. Now the violin section, they, they admire the piece, but you know it, it scares the living daylights out of everyone because of the scherzo. But that's not that's not all there there is to that piece. But I think if there was one piece, if there were one piece that could elevate to the popularity of a Schubert Unfinished or a Beethoven five or Beethoven nine or Mozart Jupiter, it'd be Schumann's second symphony. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant piece of music. If either of you had a chance to conduct it.
2: No. I, I hope you do. Yeah.
1: <laughs> very, very powerful thing. Now, having said that, I love Schumann very much, but I I found that when I first started conducting his music uh and learning it that you have I think one has to manipulate the parts and the score a fair amount yeah you in other words a beethoven a beethoven symphony you can put on the stand and basically play it the way it's written without having to adjust too much to for for balance purposes but any schumann symphony requires some very careful um manipulation of the dynamics mm-hmm. He'll write, for example, a crescendo in bar four, and then you're flipping already eight pages of the score until you finally see <laughs> the result of that crescendo. And obviously, you can't you can't sustain that. So you have to f- decide how how are you going to deal with this? Are you not going to crescendo the first three pages and then do it, or will you do a twenty-bar crescendo up to this uh, modulation and then start over mm-hmm. again? Mm-hmm. How are you going to make this one bassoon obligato line audible against everything else that's going yeah. on? There's so much that you have to to mess with <laughs> before it's ready to be played.
2: Yeah, I think that's but, that's what I know most about the Schumann symphonies is just hearing yeah. about the the orchestration and some of the problems that sure. come with them. Yeah, they're, they're more challenging. You know, it's
1: I wouldn't say it's prob it's problematic if you don't do this preliminary homework mm-hmm. if you just put the music on the stand then you're in trouble um but if you do all this other homework it, you know it, it's also fascinating to figure out how to manipulate it yeah. how are you going to get the two flutes to be audible against everything else how how would you do it as a composer how do you think schumann would have dealt with it had he been open to <laughs> to uh editing let's say yeah. Now, as you you probably know that Mahler edited all four of those symphonies himself and did all kinds of things. The only thing I that I find very difficult to accept is there are places where he actually cuts bars out.
3: Oh really. Okay.
1: Yeah. And I understand why he cuts certain bars out, because maybe these two bars are not really essential, <laughs> but to me <laughs> I think all of the bars are essential. Yeah. So far be it for me to criticize Mahler, but I don't use the Mahler retouchings. Okay. I just uh, try to do my own, but um, reorchestrate hardly anything. Mm-hmm. And I say hardly anything because I have reorchestrated a few things. Yeah, just doubling doubling certain melodies that I think ought to be heard that are buried somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a symphony I definitely like to dig into.
1: Yeah. But, you know, I have to say that, that this idea of having to do a lot of preliminary work while studying a piece applies I, I think it applies to a lot of composers, be, Schumann and before. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to perform a Haydn or a Mozart symphony, there isn't a whole lot on the page besides just the notes. Yeah. Um, he Mozart doesn't write any uh, hairpins or commas where one should take a breath or Uh, you know he just writes the notes and once in a while there's a dynamic there and you've got to fill in the blanks and it it has always helped to work out an interpretation in the score and then have all of that stuff put in the parts prior to the first rehearsal it saves it saves a lot of rehearsal time Mm -hmm. that typically we don't have
2: yeah especially if you're if you're doing like a whole Mozart opera there's even le- there's more music and less rehearsal time. Oh. oh yes, and very often there's a lot of
1: music that's cut out of Mozart operas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've done two of them so far, and I've yet to conduct a, a complete Mozart opera. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I just I just got finished with Magic Flute, and yeah, we, oh, we yeah. cut some of that. We ran into some trouble because the there are no rehearsal marks in the parts, so they were put in yeah, by the previous, but they weren't consistent.
1: Oh, that's a major headache. And yeah. it, again, when you get to rehearsal and you find that they have rehearsal letters and you have bar numbers, it's it's murder. And they they get very angry, especially professional orchestras oh, get yeah. very angry if if we're wasting time dealing with that. So that's that's another lesson uh, to be learned. Now, we're lucky we have a we have a, a first rate librarian and she always says, um, um our parts will have bar numbers and rehearsal numbers. And here are a few of the rehearsal, I mean, rehearsal letters.
3: Oh, that's good. And
1: so I'll just double check my score with what they have to make sure it's all fine, unless the parts are my own. And then I have nothing to complain about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think conductors are really lucky now, thanks to IMSLP. Yeah. You know, before you just had to save your save your dollars and then buy a set of Calmus parts whenever you had enough money raised. Yeah. But now you can download all these things and have them all marked your way, have them bound. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not that expensive to do now. Again, uh, you need to spend a lot of time with any music that's written from the romantic area backwards, because there isn't a whole lot there on the page Mm -hmm. and the the players should have all of the bowings and all of these markings in their parts before the first rehearsal.
2: Yeah. And that's, I think that that gets tricky for students also because it's it's a step beyond what's in the music. It's not just like we were talking right. earlier. It's not just learning the notes and what's in there. It's then you have to generate, you have to create, you have to be creative um, to create something that's that's maybe not right there. Well, and you know,
1: I, I would say as a youngster too, as a young conductor, I... I didn't have many ideas to bring to the piece. I was just so trying to learn the piece as it was on the page, mm-hmm. um, much less trying to think of ways to, to add to the piece, you know whether it's uh, additional dynamic changes or whatever. Um, but you know B- Boeings the Boeing's have such a, an important um, impact on a piece of music. That I would suggest, if you're starting out and you're going to conduct, let's say, a Mozart Divertimento, you can get a few string players Mm -hmm. together, you know, uh, why not buddy up to one of the violinists or cellists, take them out to dinner and Mm -hmm. ask in return if if they wouldn't mind helping you put bowings in the parts. Mm -hmm. And as they're putting the bowings in the parts, they can explain why certain things should start up bow or down bow, um, which part of the bow one should play a passage is it on the string or off the string all of the stuff was like martian to me when i first started yeah. i just didn't know again j- just trying to learn the bloody brahms first symphony first <laughs> movement that took all the time there was no time for all this other stuff mm-hmm. but um if if there's a way to find the time early on and and uh, and get to know a string player befriend the string player and have them just tell you some of the basics, it, it'll help a lot.
4: Yeah. So what's, um, this kind of like leads into to the question, um, as far as like, what what's something that we should be doing as conducting students that maybe we're not? You know, we've already touched on the whole um, digging a little deeper into your score study um, <laughs> and going that one step further. Is there something else that you might add into that?
1: Yeah, I, I would say um, th- this was an exercise that one of my first conducting teachers at the University of Maryland taught me. He he assigned all of us in the class the first movement of Brahms Four, And he said, he, he asked if people, if if anyone in the room had watched sports on television. Well, everyone raised their hands. And he said, do you know what the color commentator does? And we'll say, sure. The, the play-by-play guy says... Uh, a four-yard pass. It's now on the 50-yard line, so forth, so on. But the color commentator says, "Well, this is how he got those four yards. He had this block over here, and this and that, and this and that." So what? What he wanted us to do was to write a play-by-play, <laughs> emotional, a description of the emotions in the first moon of Brahms Four. In other words, let's say the first eight bars, w- what is this music trying to say emotionally? So you might write, um, it's it's eight bars of searching, finding, but then questioning again uh, in a melancholy mood. But then in the, in the 28th bar, it suddenly becomes more martial and aggressive, um, pessimistic. In other words, Try to, to write an outline of all of the emotional states in that piece of music, and I thought th- this was an inc- it was a very challenging process.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But I find that this is what conducting is about, and this is this is how this is what you're showing the orchestra. You're showing everything I just said. You're showing melancholy somehow in your face. And then when da 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 ba 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 ba, ba comes, you you already feel some kind of aggression or martial feeling or power there. And it all comes over your face. And that's, I think really a very important part of the music, not just it's in four here and there's a crescendo there. And then the flute comes in there (laughs) besides the, the the nitty gritty, what the emotional things are, what is Brahms trying to say? And I have found in the, the few workshops that I've done with conductors we will work on a piece of music and then I will turn to one of the conductors and say, well what do you think what do you think Beethoven's trying to communicate here and usually the answer I get is well he's going from c major to <laughs> to the subdominant and then there's suddenly a flat 2 a neapolitan I said no 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 I I don't mean that but I mean what is he communicating what is he, what is he trying to tell the audience? Yeah. There's no right or wrong answer. Cause we don't know. Beethoven didn't say these four bars are about this,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but what do you think it's about and, and trying to pull that information out of, uh, out of that person was really painstaking. Yeah. Um, so I think and you, and you, everyone is a performer, you know, we're all instrumentalists. And we have to communicate to an orchestra, to an audience. It's just putting it in words Mm
3: -hmm.
1: that may be difficult, but the more you can put it in the words, the more it's, it's reinforced in your mind and your heart. And again, if you're in front of the orchestra and you hear them playing that pass, that military passage, um, kind of blandly, you would stop them and say, no, this has got to be more aggressive. This is more, more militaristic, more, uh, more powerful, that's what you would tell them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, you could say louder, please, shorter, please, <laughs> and you will do that mostly. But when you put it in the context and you you tell the players what you think it should should be, that's important. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my very long winded answer to your question. I think it's a
2: it's a great answer, and it's yeah, it's a good way to yeah, because we 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 can know what we're feeling in this, but. Making it concrete is is going to give it, yeah, and it helps you. It helps you communicate to the ensemble and solidify those ideas in your head, and have to describe and, what you're feeling.
1: And there's an there's another potential benefit for doing this. The more you try to explain, well, first to yourself, mm-hmm. you you have a running commentary about what the piece is about. Let's say you get your first job with a professional orchestra as an assistant conductor. What are you going to do? You're not going to conduct Mahler symphonies. You may not even conduct a Beethoven symphony. You'll probably do Pops concerts, but more importantly, you're going to be doing educational concerts. Yeah. And what do you do in educational concerts? You play short pieces for the for the audience, but then you explain the music to them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, the more you have an ease of explaining music to people, whether they're kids, or if they sent, I used to be sent a lot to Barnes and Noble to do little talks about the upcoming concert that someone else was conducting.
3: Okay. And I had
1: to explain, you know, I had to do the background information. Yeah, Beethoven was going through such and such at this time. Um, the music is very powerful here. The second movement is much more uh, humorous and so forth. Basically, what I'm doing is what I was doing in those exercises. Mm-hmm. I was preparing myself to be able to explain the music in in simple terms terms a a child can understand or a lay person lay adult Mm -hmm. i found all of this stuff very very helpful in in preparing for for speaking
3: yeah
1: and orchestras want to hire an assistant conductor that is um approachable that has a a warm personality and that can talk very clearly Mm -hmm. and explain music very clearly yeah that's what they're all looking for in, in the auditions. There's usually a conducting audition and then there's an interview.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And sometimes the interview is as important, if not slightly more important than the stick technique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, and, but again, that's not something that's often talked about during, a, during a conducting, uh, well, in school,
3: yeah.
1: there are a lot of things I learned, unfortunately, after school, <laughs> was was finished. Yeah. And, and it was these kinds of things. Have either of you been taught how to write a script for a youth concert?
2: We've we've we did our undergrad together. So we've done huh. we've done a, a project where we had to put that together. But we didn't um and we didn't go into the, into the nitty gritty of it.
1: Well, not, not everyone that's watching this will want to become a professional conductor uh, or a conductor of a professional orchestra, a, a major orchestra. Uh, but, but many who do see it, who want that kind of career, should, should at least prepare two or three kinds of scripts, two or three scripts for um, a, a potential elementary school concert or high school concert. Because, again, that's what you're going to be doing the moment you get that job. Yeah. If you're lucky, after two years, you may get a subscription concert, but it's highly unlikely. You'll be doing these other community sorts of events and educational concerts. And um, to be able to write a script and to select pieces that will be appropriate for that audience is, um, is challenging.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you've had a little experience trying it before... Uh, you audition for a job, you're much better off. A lot of orchestras ask for a script uh, or for uh, educational concert uh, themes.
3: Yeah.
1: Sometimes the program too. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that. Public speaking is
1: something we we have to, most of us have to learn on the job Mm -hmm. because in school we're taught when you're on the podium, don't talk, right? (laughs) Don't talk or don't talk too much. And then you get your job. You have to talk a lot.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're taught our communication with the musicians, but not with uh, not with the people who are supporting the organization. Right. Yeah.
1: Don't go on and on on the podium. Be concise, yet be effective. And then go in the, go out there and and go to the Barnes and Noble talk for an hour about music. <laughs> yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So we have just one more question. Okay. Um, and this is this is our billboard question. And if you could erect a billboard that every musician would see every day, um, what would you put on it? That can be a quote, a picture. We've had somebody say just a score, a video. One thing that you think every every musician should see.
1: Don't take music for granted and love what you do. Good stuff. That's all well, I'd say.
2: Maestro Bay, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: It's a real pleasure. Thank you.
2: It's been a pleasure for us as well. Uh, and, I've had a great time. Uh, we'll yeah. we'll put some links to the to the Bernstein mass. For sure. Wonderful. Thank you. Everyone can I tell you ahead. the
1: can I tell you the uh, the website? Yes, yes. So it's bernstein the number 100 austin.org.
2: All right. bernstein100austin.org. That's right, because it's not a—it's not directly with the symphony. I'd forgotten about that. Right, you know? and but it's uh—it's
1: linked to the the Bernstein Bernstein at one hundred uh, celebrations that are happening worldwide.
3: Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Are
2: either of you getting to conduct any
1: Bernstein this year?
2: I, ju- I saw the symphonic dances for band on Monday. I'm not uh-huh. I'm not conducting any, not that I know of anyway.
4: Not yet. <laughs> We're actually doing the, the Chichester Psalms next week. Oh, great. So, uh, in my conducting classes, we've been doing all the, that's been our focus of score study, and then uh, lots of conducting issues in there. So
1: <laughs> I won't oh, yes. kind of
4: conduct it with the, um, with the orchestra, but we've been conducting it in our class. So,
1: You know, one of the beauty, beauties of that score is, uh, for example, the last movement, it's it's in 10-4, isn't it? Or part- <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> But he tells you how to beat how to beat it. Yeah. He says he says to beat it in four. Yep.
3: It so. was
4: probably one of my favorite days that we've had this semester was when we were reading uh we were reading that and Dr. Keltz told the orchestra, he says, um it's in ten uh it's in ten, but I'm gonna be in four. And like he's trying <laughs> to see all like the little like gears clicking and all the all the, yeah. you know, <laughs> the brains and they're trying to figure out like what he was talking about. Uh-huh. But then once once the example is given it makes
1: perfect sense. Oh so. yeah, it flows, it flows. Yeah. Well, you know the the piece ends with this e- extraordinarily beautiful chorale and that the, the there's a, an, an, another extraordinary beautiful chorale called Almighty Father that's very much like the one in Chichester Psalms in mass. Okay. So you know, he's he, he's sort of reusing these same uh, techniques and things in, in the two pieces.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you're doing it.
4: Yeah. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun, Jeremy and Luke. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for, for asking me, and um, I'm to do it again down yeah. the road.
2: All righty. Yeah, and thank you again for your time.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm so glad you're doing this.
0: Fantastic. All right. All Take care, right. guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podium Time. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our other episodes at PodiumTimePod.wordpress.com Be sure to join our mailing list there or on our Facebook page at Facebook.com PodiumTimePod Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony was performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra and Beethoven's Egmont Overture was performed by Stefano Ligorati.